my name is Abby, and I'm a volunteer here at Recovery Radio. If you want to feel good about yourself today, I have a suggestion that will help you. Just go to www.recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. Then, give an amount that makes you feel good. You'll be amazed by your own awesomeness all day. Hey, everybody. My name is Jimmy. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since August the 25th, 1997, and I'm thankful for that. And uh, that's a habit because that's what we do in our part of the world. Old David Aid say, if you don't give one, maybe you don't have one. So that's what we do. Uh, I am, uh, I'm honored and privileged uh, to do anything at all for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially spend the weekend here. It has been a phenomenal weekend until right now. <laughs> This is not my gig. It's not my bag. Uh, I was told when I came to Alcox Namas, everybody gets a turn, and this is my turn. And, uh, and fortunately, there have been some great people on your program uh, so far this weekend. A couple of the people, Jane, I've heard before. I've been on programs with her before, and Kent's a good friend of mine. Uh, I got the opportunity to hear Pauline for the first time today, and uh, that lady has some control issues, Pauline. <laughs> I told her in front of Kay, who's been in Alan a long, long time, I said, they've written some literature about you. <laughs> and I've had been afforded the opportunity, as so many of us are as members of Alcoholics Anonymous, to cooperate with the Fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous. There are a couple of men uh, up and through this year that call me every year on their clean dates because I took them to their first meeting of Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, they came through the intergroup zones in Dallas. Uh, and after you spend two or three hours with a guy, uh, oftentimes we can uh, get a feel for exactly where he can identify and recover and be a contributing member of a fellowship. And uh, although I do not qualify for Narcotics Anonymous, uh, I've got good friends that actively participate in that fellowship. And, uh, and so those guys call me every year and say, thank you for taking me to my first meeting. And... Uh, There are a lot of pieces of material that I think are relevant and pertinent to that. I want to say I appreciate George's talk beyond measure. Um, uh, and I was given in my first year of sobriety, maybe my first couple of years of sobriety, uh, a, a, a piece from uh, NA World Service that has helped me over the years as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it talks about NA's relationship to AA, and I think it's a phenomenal piece of material. Uh, they look to us as the elder statesman. Our office, General Service Office in New York City, has a day of sharing every year. We've done it for 40 years. We're all the anonymi are invited to, uh, to the General Service Office. And, uh, and there are many anonymi. And I don't say that flippantly. I say that with all due respect. Every one of those anonymi has its own single purpose. And as Dr. Bob said, uh, one of the guys in my group would say, it's in that book in scribbly writing, it's probably important, uh, that that sense of identification is key. And, uh, and so I do appreciate the program. I appreciate what Fellowship Hall has done and obviously continues to do um, for the alcoholic who still suffers, the addict who still suffers, and perhaps as importantly, certainly in my story, for the person's person or persons who love them unconditionally brought one of those people with me when I came to AA, and, uh, and I understand that it is a family disease, 
There are a lot of directions, as I understand them, in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And my sponsor, early on, before I probably was ever at that step, would point out certain lines to me that he thought were pertinent. We spent a lot of time in the car. They've invested hundreds of hours in me. Uh, Now, the results of that, I'll leave that up to you. But they've invested hundreds of hours in me. And uh, and long before I was ever at a position where I thought I could make amends to that person I brought with me to Alcoholics Anonymous, who, you know, one of those people just wouldn't stay down. And I didn't know how you made right some of the wrongs that certainly had been done along the way. I knew about material things. I knew about stealing stuff. And I understood, I think, the concept of how you paid that back. But I was troubled, new in sobriety, about stealing people's peace of mind, and I didn't know how you gave that back. And my sponsor did some wonderful things for me. One of the things he shared with me was from a talk by a man named Albert M., who had died before I sobered up. And Albert talked about stealing people's peace of mind. And uh, and I listened to that cassette over and over and over again. And as kind of a follow-up to that, I was shown a line in the book that's been as important to me as any line in the book. And it's in the directions on the ninth step, and uh, and it says there's a long period of reconstruction ahead. And I wish every member of any anonymous fellowship, uh, certainly the opportunity to make direct amends for harms done per our steps, uh, but also the tremendous opportunity of the long period of reconstruction, which is an invitation to actively begin to actively participate in those people's lives. Uh, I'm doing my family a disservice and my good friends a disservice if I hide out an Alcoholics Anonymous like I used to hide out when I drank. And I take the principles that you teach me here, accountability, availability, responsibility, respectability, and try to apply them where it's really hard to apply them, which is uh, outside of the scope of being in here with you. Uh, you know, you help me live right uh, by your example. I'm Dallas Boys, born in area of Dallas called Lakewood. Mm. I start on that tale of woe. I'm a member of the Chicago group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Twelve-year-old group, we meet on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock at the Northway Christian Church, which is right by North Park Mall, central part of Dallas. We'd love to have you. If you're ever in Dallas on Wednesday night, please come see us. It is a great open speaker meeting about Cox and Amos. We sat around 12 years ago in my sponsor's kitchen forming a group. I wanted to resurrect the name of the old suburban group in Dallas, which had been gone for years. I had my plan of action. I was ready to do whatever I needed to do to bring that to the conscience of those that were assembled to form that group. I was even willing to exert a little undue influence, not per the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, to try to get my way. I was sorely outnumbered and voted handily down on the naming of that new group, even by men that I sponsored, which I thought was just a special kind of knife in my stomach. (laughs) I saw a lot of step work in their future after that meeting that night. (laughs) We had a format that we really liked, 90-minute meeting. Highly unusual in Dallas, Texas to have a 90-minute meeting. Our butts are trained for an hour in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> we took that format verbatim from a group in Chicago, Illinois. It's inside the loop. It's almost downtown. Kent's been there, talked there, I'm sure, many times. And uh, the name of that group is California Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. 
couple of years ago, a sponsor brother of mine and his wife moved to San Antonio. He was going to medical school down there. They got with some old heads down in around San Antonio and decided that they would start a speaker meeting and see how that would work. And so they formed that group. I think it's now probably close to three years old. And if you go to San Antonio, Texas, you can attend the Dallas group of Alcoholics Anonymous in San Antonio. <laughs> Uh, and I do want to thank Chris and the committee for the invitation to come. Absolutely. I don't want to forget that. And Ben, my gosh. I've been less than spiritual in the car with Ben. <laughs> and he hadn't let me negatively impact his program one single bit. Other than through right now. And uh, Oh, and the six-pack. I got a six-pack right before I came up here to talk. And uh, and that's a cool deal. It's uh, cheer wine. I got a uh, excuse me, a 12 pack cheer wine to take home with me from a good, from a new good friend from up here. So I, I thank you for that. When I served as delegate uh, for my area back in 09 and 10, you get a buddy. Second year delegates buddy up with first year delegate. My first year delegate was a French speaking delegate from Quebec. And so I was his delegate buddy. And so when we had the international convention in San Antonio, he came up to the meeting. We had Southwest Region meet your neighbors or something like that, you know, where you could talk for 10 or 15 minutes about general service. And so right before the talk, and there were five or 600 people in that hall in San Antonio, Jean came up to give me a present all the way from Canada. And it was actually homemade maple syrup in a big bottle, but it looked just like a pint of liquor. <laughs> and, and it even had the paper sack twisted on the top of it. So I was thinking, Southwest Region, meet your neighbors. I mean, what do you do with that? You know, sometimes the General Service Office, you know, they give a lot of direction when you don't want it. And then when you need some, they don't give you any at all. And uh, no offense to anybody who might have worked at GSO, but that's just my experience. And, uh, and so I was thinking about what I was going to talk about. And Jean did it for me, right? I said, I just want to tell you about how the conference works. I was Jean's buddy when he was first-year delegate and I was a second-year delegate. You know, show him the ropes. Here's the conference. Here's how the, the group conference of Alcoholics Anonymous works. And obviously did such a fine job that he's brought me a bottle in a brown paper sack. <laughs> so you can just kind of run with that. I'm, uh, I'm Dallas boy. I'm born in a Dallas called Lakewood. There are places up here, communities, I'm sure right in the middle of Greensboro, North Carolina, that are just like Lakewood. Lakewood's a little bitty community in the middle of a big city. Everybody knows everybody else's business in Lakewood, and they like it like that. We don't need any newspaper. We've used the word-of-mouth program for about 90 years. It's got its own little theater, own little shopping center. It's a little country club over there. It borders a reservoir, White Rock, that used to be water for the city of Dallas 100 years ago or so. And You know, my mother, was, she was a South Louisiana girl. She's from Metairie which is, uh, we would say, right across the bridge, but 100 miles away from New Orleans, according to what my mother conceptualized to be women from New Orleans. You never made a mistake, asked my mother from, from New Orleans, because according to my mother, New Orleans girls were fast, and my mother said that she was not fast. And, uh, and so she came to Dallas major in art history at SMU. And uh, the man who's going to be my father was on part-time faculty at the university. That wasn't his career path, but he was doing it as a service to the university. I can't imagine now in the late 50s and early 60s in Dallas, Texas, that they needed a geology professor and they couldn't get one quick enough. And so he had advanced degrees and they brought him over. That's what he did, a service to the community. And, uh, and so he taught that one year. And the one year that he taught at SMU, my mother, the art history major, got into that geology class. Now, why in the world she needed to do that or wanted to do that, I have absolutely no idea. 
But I will guarantee you she liked that professor pretty good. <laughs> so boy and boy, girl on SMU campus. Year after that, they engaged to be married. A year after that, they got married. A year after that, they had me. I was their only child. And, uh, and we moved in this big house down in the middle of Lakewood. And if you've ever seen reruns of the Munsters on television, you've seen that house. <laughs> big old brown brick, gothic-looking thing with a green tile roof. We just didn't have big trees that looked like could eat people in the front. But other than that, it looked just like that Munsters house. And uh, had a lot of little rooms inside of it where... A little kid like me could hide. My mother stayed at home, took care of me. We had these hippies living in our garage apartment. Always herds and herds of them that lived back there in the garage apartment. This is the mid to late 60s. I was born in 64, so it was the beginning of, let's say, the age of unrest. And uh, my mother was a flip-haired girl. She didn't know anything about unrest. And I think it was her personal mission to collect anyone that she thought might be have a negative influence on the United States of America and shove them into our garage apartment. <laughs> I mean, I remember we'd pull up after we'd pick a Piggly Wiggly or whatever, and there they'd be. You know, they were waiting for her to bring them some groceries or a loaf of bread or something. And I thought, you know, I was a little kid. I just thought they were funny. You know, they were all out there, and she was going, did you have a good day? And they just kind of be... Bobbling around. I was intrigued. Oh, my gosh. My dad had a company to run. They shot seismic, did different things. He went around the country, at least around the southwest. And, uh, you know, when he'd leave, we'd do this little thing called the going away game. Two or three days later, my daddy would come back home. When my daddy came back home, that was a big deal in our house. He made it a big deal. There was a two-story foyer in the front of that house, and we kind of had a front door and then a second front door, like those old houses from the teens and 20s were built, and you had kind of like an ante room, and he'd stand on a mark in the middle of the ante room. And you could whisper in that house. I mean, its acoustics were perfect, and you could hear it all the way through, but he stood on his mark, and he'd holler, I'm home. I am home. I'm home. I'm home. I meant my mother was supposed to leave pots on the stove and come to the front. And if I was upstairs in the back playing, I stopped what I was doing and I ran downstairs. We didn't respond in the time he'd allocated for us. I'd go back outside. He'd slam that door harder and he'd yell louder. He wanted you to come and he wouldn't move off his mark. I did what any four or five year old boy does. And then he comes back home. My God, he's been gone three days. It's like a hundred years. I ran downstairs and I remember just as distinctly as if it was yesterday, it was 45 years ago, I'd grab him around his legs just as tight as I could. He'd say, Jimbo, reach in a pocket. I reach in his breast coat pocket, I pull out something like an arrowhead. I remember the arrowhead because I remember the story. I'd hold that arrowhead in my hand and he'd start telling me about Alamogordo, New Mexico. He'd start spinning these tales about going out to Alamogordo and then he'd start describing these bluffs around Alamogordo, New Mexico. He's a great storyteller and as he tell that tale, that arrowhead was hot in my hand. Because, you know, that injury had dropped it about five minutes before my daddy had picked it up. And <laughs> You know, my mom, she was the kind of lady, she was from the old south and the deep south. We were all together in that house. We had dinner in the dining room, and we had a tablecloth and napkins, and you had plates, and you had glasses and silverware, and that's what you did. And uh, then it changed. He left one day, and uh, I don't remember any detailed discussion about it that day or any other day. And uh, my mother cried, and she normally didn't cry. And I thought, you know, she used a few rounds of the clock, and he always comes back. And that time he didn't. 
Next time I was going to see or hear anything from my real father again, I was 19. 14 years later, I was 19. I was a sophomore at SMU. In fact, I had liked it so much, it was my second sophomore year at SMU. <laughs> I got a telephone call one day, and this young woman on the other end of the line opened up the conversation. She said, are you the Jimmy Dean that I'm looking for? She found my name and number in the telephone book. I was talking at Oklahoma Young People thing in Tulsa six or seven years ago, and I've said, told that story many times, and I said, she found my name and number in the telephone book. And I'm not going to say everybody was 25 or under, but the vast majority of the attendees certainly were 21, 22 years old in the room. And when I said telephone book, it was like the RCA dog. You know, their heads just kind of went. So I had to segue off for a minute to describe that book, you know, that had, yeah, you know. I see gray hair in the room. Y'all know about telephone book. Anyway, she opened the conversation by asking me if I was a Jimmy Dean that she was looking for. And now I was 19, and I started what we call a drinking career in Alcoholics Anonymous at 15. So I knew from way back that the answer to that question was never yes. You never said yes, you were the person to whom they were trying to find unless you found out why they were trying to find you and it sounded like something you wanted to do. We talked for a couple of minutes and she was the daughter of a woman my father had married. They lived within, I don't know, five or six miles of me all those years and she called me to tell me my father had a stroke and died. She had heard that there had been another marriage before, that there had been another family, a child, and, uh, and she sought me out and she wanted to let me know. After my father had left that house, my mother was a single parent for about a year, and uh, at the end of that year, I'd always sneak around. There's women in our house all the time. They'd come, 20 and 30 of them, just herds of them had come in, and they'd stuff envelopes, Cancer Society, Heart Association, raising money for stuff. And I heard my mother say something about a date. I didn't know anything about a date, had absolutely no idea what it was. Was it living? Was it, you know, animal, vegetable, mineral? Didn't even know. But I still up there on La Vista Drive when the date was coming to our house because I wanted to see what it was. This guy drove up in a yellow Ford Fairlane 500 convertible. And I don't mean taupe and I don't mean off-white. I'm talking yellow, like yellow. <laughs> and the guy was about six foot three, had lamb chop sideburns and curly black hair, and had on black shirt, black belt, black pants, black pointy-toed boots, got out of that yellow convertible. I never seen anything like it in my life. I mean, you have to imagine that my father, I would say, somewhat of a distinguished man, but you remember he spent that year teaching at a university, really basically for recreation. And I'm sure my mother said, I pulled from that pool the first time, didn't work out very good for me, so let me get way over here and Billy Jack's come in front door of my house. I evaluated him. He evaluated me. We did that for about 10 seconds. He got tired of that game that I guess he thought I was playing, and he just picked me up. Like UPS hold a package, come to your front door, and knocked on the front door. My mother, flip-haired mother, opened the front door, and I remember that he just handed her me. Like, this strange creature must belong to you. It's on your porch. And they dumped me off that night at his mother's house um, and went off on a date beginning of a relationship, my mother, devout Catholic. We've had lots of Catholics on the program this weekend, and uh, I don't know what that's about. We'll say that's an outside issue. Uh, but I mean church every day. And, uh, and so marriage was in the church, marriage was in the building, and it took some time to get an annulment, uh, especially back then. It took them about a year, and then they got married. She was so happy. My gosh, she was happy. He was a gentle soul, just a good man, good man. 
And so uh, we made a family. You know, uh, those women would gather up and uh, stuff those envelopes, do all that stuff in that house, and they'd hear my mother talk, and it's not un- unbeknownst to you. I mean, I'm in kind of sort of my part of the world, and you know that we can tell from people are North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, East Texas, West Texas, different accents, all of that kind of stuff. And they'd hear my mother talk, and she'd turn coffee into a nine-syllable word. You know, it'd just go on and on and on and on and on. They'd say, where in the world are you from? And she'd say, well, I came up here to go to school at SMU. I'm from South Louisiana. I never expected to spend my life in the north. And to my mother, Dallas, Texas was the north. (laughs) So my stepdad was a stockbroker. And a couple years after they married, I was about eight years old, we got an opportunity to move from Dallas, Texas to Lafayette, Louisiana. And that just warmed her heart just about as much as anything probably ever had. He gave her a tremendous gift. I mean, it wasn't New Orleans, but it was close. So we all loaded up, moved down to Lafayette. We actually lived on the New Iberia Road, which was kind of in the city, but not. Big house with some big land around it. And my God, all those kids were Cajun. Every kid, hey, kid was Cajun but me. Thibodeau, Arsenault, Flo, Mo, all of them. They talk mushmouth. They teach you how to talk mushmouth. And uh, we had a great year. At the end of that year, that stepdad's mom, that grandmother, flew to Lafayette to bring me back to Dallas for the summer. My parents were going to go to Europe and spend some time awaiting the kid. And back then, 1973, there weren't any laws about anything back then. My uh, mother drove me to the airport, Lafayette, got on the plane with me. Said, oh, honey, you won't believe how quickly the summer's going to pass. We'll all be back together in Lafayette. I'm going to send you postcards and write you letters just as often as I can. And she's kissed me on the cheek and... Got off the plane. We flew to Dallas. And next morning, I was upstairs in my grandmother's house, and I heard people talking. I smelled breakfast, heard the phone ringing, and I went downstairs to see what was going on, just like anybody would. And everybody shut up. There were 40 or 50 people in that room that morning. And uh, my grandmother looked at me and said, I was about to come up and get you up. Your mother's had an accident. We've got to go back to Lafayette, and we've got to get on a plane just as quick as we can. And I remember thinking, what in the world's big deal? I've been around my mother longer than anybody else in that room that morning. My mother drove a 1972 Fleetwood Cadillac, and I'm going to tell you, if you want to pull it up on Google, you won't get it on one screen on your phone. (laughs) And you were then four or five hundred feet of her in any parking lot, and she reversed. She hit you. (laughs) She wrote a little something on a slip of paper. She said, Jimbo, run the note. I did it a hundred times. It was like I was her accomplice. You know, it was that immediate stop, a little bit of a crunch. She'd scribble something on a note. Run the note, Jimbo. Run the note. And I'd take that note and I'd put it underneath your windshield wiper. I'd get back in the car and she'd say, I can't believe I've had another accident. She'd have her head in her hands. To an eight-year-old boy, that's what we're doing. That's what we're dealing with. That's what we're talking about. Making an awful big deal about something that's not ever been a big deal. We gathered people in clothes and we got on the next plane to Lafayette. They'd leave me in a waiting room at the Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Lafayette, Louisiana, and go down the hallway and go in a room. There was no technology that I was aware of in 1973. And it seemed like I spent hours in that room by myself. Probably not, but it seemed that way. They had these square ceiling tiles. You'll still see them in old buildings, and they had the little dots on the tiles, and I would count those dots. And then I'd lose the number. I don't know, 70, 80, 90 sometimes. I'd lose the number. I hated it when I lost the number because I looked down the hallway. Somebody would come out of that room. 
And I thought, they've got to be coming to get me. Because if I hold her hand, if I whisper in her ear, I can fix it. I knew I could. They sent a priest up that hall later, nine days after we'd started that process. We'd leave the house before the sun and come up in the morning. We'd go back home late at night, let nobody talk. That priest sat down next to me and gave me a little prayer card and said, think good thoughts about your mother. And that's the way they let me know that she had passed away. Something or somebody had run her off the road right after she had left me at the Lafayette airport that morning. She was the most God-fearing person I'd ever known. We'd go in that building when I was a little boy, and I don't intend to offend anyone in meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous by spending too much time talking about secular religion, but I want to tell you her cup was filled in that building, and rightly so. She'd say stuff to her little boy, like, watch the priest's hands. She felt something there. And what I learned from that experience was, look at that. Look at what that God that she talked about did. That power is dangerous. That power will pull you in and destroy you. We closed that house up, came back to Dallas. My real father, we didn't hear anything at all from him. My stepdad went to Glen Rose, just south of Fort Worth, a little town, and we had a big ranch outside of that town, and he went to that land. I lived with his mom, my grandmother, the next few months. My grandmother's the youngest of nine children. She talked to her five sisters every day for 75 years. I'd eavesdrop on her conversations trying to find out what in the world was going on because he was my dad and he should be in that house with us. My grandmother would tell her sisters, I've never seen a heart broken like his heart is broken. That boy's heart is broken. But we're going to leave him on that land because since the time he was a little bitty boy, that land's always given him strength. And that's what we did. That was a decision that was made by us. And 11 months after my mother died, my grandmother was crying so hard she couldn't talk. And that house was full of people like it had been not so long before. My stepdad committed suicide in the living room of that ranch house, her only child. I had godparents and I had people that were blood-related to me, and they summered in one country and wintered somewhere else. And they had children of their own to raise. We heard nothing from my real father. That stepfather's mother stepped up. She was a relatively young woman at the time, I mean, in her 50s. She said, I love this boy, and my son loved this boy, and I'll raise him. That's exactly what she did. She's the person who loved me unconditionally. She's the person to whom I owed many amends. The men that I sponsor know that nothing can arouse their sponsor's ire more than not trying to the best of their ability to try to give back in every way possible just a little bit of the peace of mind that they happen to have taken over all of those years of drinking. I've not found one man yet I've spent more than five or ten minutes talking to but who has not had the same experiences that I have had. Why would I spend the first 15 minutes meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous telling you about stuff that happened long before I took my first drink? Because Kent's already told us about that. Bottles are only a symbol. I was a little boy who conceptualized a lot of things about a higher power long before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. When my stepfather left this earth the way that he left this earth, I was angry, and I wanted you to fix it. In fact, I insisted that you fix it. And certainly people overcompensated. Human beings will do that. My family had resources, and they availed themselves, and I availed themselves of all of their resources. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous at 32 years of age as a child of entitlement. I came arrogant. I came self-serving. 
I've had two sponsors since I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Both of those men, as I said before, invested hundreds and hundreds of hours in my well-being. I've had strong direction since I've been sober in AA, but I have never had a finger in my chest. I've had many, many arms around my shoulder. My sponsor would come to me when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous and say, Jimmy, I understand that your lack of communication is fear, but is perceived by some as arrogance. And arrogance is unacceptable here. It violates every principle that we know. So we're going to work on the fear because you must engage. In order to recover, you must become vested in the recovery of somebody else. Thank God. Thank God. So what happened for me is I grew up. I didn't grow up very fast. Now, I wasn't living in an alcohol-free zone. I'd had sips of beer and sips of wine and this, that, and the other thing. But I don't know anything about drinking. Not like we know about drinking. <laughs> I observed the kind of drinking that's probably going on in Greensboro, North Carolina tonight. People who go home after a long day and they have a couple of drinks because they just want to wind down. I'm not a wind down kind of guy. <laughs> I saw the print ads, the brandy snifter, some kind of cosmopolitan-looking pack of cigarettes. I was ready for all of that stuff. All of that stuff's in place. I'm 15 years old. I'm a freshman at Woodrow Wilson High School. I'm about a year younger than everybody else, freshman at Woodrow Wilson High School. I'm a nerd. Horrible. It's bad. I spent a little time talking about it at dinner tonight. I'm not going to go any further into it. Just tell you, it doesn't ever go away. I had two friends. They were identical twins. Their dad was a podiatrist. It was bad. We found out about a senior beer bust the first week of school. We didn't know anything about senior beer or bust. If I could find either one of those Wilcox twins today, I would ask them why in the world we thought it was a good idea to go to that beer bust. I think we were going to write a report for the science club. That's what I think. We went and watched them. I don't know what they did at your high school, but if you were freshman nerds at a senior beer bus, Woodrow Wilson, you watched them. And at the end of the evening, I had two cups of hot foam from a tapped-out keg at the hill at White Rock Lake. Didn't change my perception, but I equated everything they were doing with what they were drinking. Now, I was involved in every kind of academic club you could possibly imagine, and I will guarantee you that none of their activities involved what went on at the hill at White Rock Lake the night of the beer bus. Girls chase boys, boys chase girls. They got in that first keg, tapped it out. By the time they started that second keg, they were falling down on each other on purpose. And that had never happened in my experience before. <laughs> the park police came. They set a tree on fire. It was just magic, magic, magic stuff. So the next morning in the hallway, those kids that organized that event found out I had resources. Remember the overcompensation part. They decided they could avail myself of, they could avail themselves of my resources. So they said, we're going to teach you how to have a good time. And I need to go on record in any meeting of anything to let you know that they fulfilled that commitment 100%. And they gave me a list of things that I needed to do in order to hang with them and have a good time. First thing I needed to do was become 18, because drinking age in Texas then was 18. So they drove me down on Greenville Avenue, and back then, for $50... A nice old little old lady made you 18. Just click, click, click. You're 18. 
Went and took a hardship driving test. You could get a hardship license in Texas at 15. I barely passed the test because I've been driving a little bit at the ranch, and so I got that driver's license. Number two was completed. It had a sticker on the back of it back then. Now in Texas, they rotate your head. It's sideways, right? But back then, it looked just like a regular license. They put a stick of piece of tape on the back that said, to and from school only. That was the restriction. So I went back to these people that were in the know that were teaching me how to live life to its fullest. And I said, well, I got this license, but they said, to and from school only. I'm not going to be driving at night. And the head honcho in that deal just turned that license over and he peeled that piece of tape off. I was appalled. I said, that's generated. Austin, Texas generates that. That's a legal thing. I learned a vitally important lesson from that guy, one of many. He said, if we pull this piece of tape off, then you just tell them you never had that tape. And I said, but if I tell them that, that's a lie. And he said, if you tell a lie and they believe it, it's not a lie. (laughs) We can do a lot of drinking on that. Third and final thing I needed was a vehicle to go with the license. I went home through a couple of fits. They didn't have to be major fits, but they were probably bigger than most of the ones I threw. I don't think I jumped down the stairs or anything like that, but I threw some fits because I needed the car. I had a brand new Firebird, 24 hours, had 14 miles on it when I drove it off the lot. So I was going through the horseshoe at Woodrow the next day because that's what you did at Woodrow Wilson High School. You wanted somebody to know you had arrived, that you had done something, you drove through the horseshoe or you went through the horseshoe. And I was not, I've never been built, obviously. I mean, I'm 50 years old, and i got as much weight on me as I've ever had. I know that's a sad deal, but that 145 pounds, that's good for me. But I was about 5'5 five, five then, so I didn't have any height. And that 78 Firebird rode below, bucket seats. Had to debate with myself that morning on whether I needed to sit on a pillow to drive that car to school the first day. I thought, Jimmy, even you're not so such a big loser, you're going to have to sit on a pillow to drive your brand new car to school. And so I didn't. And so I was trying to get in that horseshoe the next morning, and I was trying to pull myself up so I could look over that long dash. And when I pulled on that wheel, I punched that feed. And when I punched that feed, the Firebird roared. Man, that car had an engine in it that would not quit. And uh, way too much torque for a little nerd like me. Those tires peeled out. I peed all over myself. I mean, bad. <laughs> Junior girl saw the Firebird. She got inside that school and she said, Papagayo Disco, Friday night, tonight. Pick me up 7 o'clock. She lived on Green Tree Lane. Oh, my God, we got in that club up there on Greenville that night. The height of the disco era. Whew. Doorman all in white. We got in because she looked like she might have been 16. I looked like I was about 4. They always needed women up on Greenville. Oh, my God, DG's music is squeaking and squawking, coming from every corner of the room. They had trays of amaretto sours roaming through there, and I grabbed an amaretto sour like everybody else. I drank that drink. It wasn't hot foam like we had had at that keg party. When it hit my stomach, albeit way too sweet and not going to be my drink of choice, it began to perform the magic. The magic. And I ingested enough that night to find something that I knew for the next 17 years could allow me to make tomorrow a million years away. 
And there are a lot of times when a drunk like me needs tomorrow to be a million years away. I found that if I drank enough, I could repaint yesterday and make it look exactly the way that I always wanted it to look. That is not, nor has it ever been, the description of the average temperate drinker. I browned out, blacked out, passed out that night. Somebody got me home in a brand new car. The next morning, I thought, when are we going to do it again? Oh, my gosh, when are we going to do it again? What freedom. What freedom I'd found. That was fun. Having a good time. Let's just move on with that. Ride the tallest wave. I was a nerd because academically, it matched me. Other people started catching up pretty quick. I didn't discover until years thereafter that along with the drinking, I was sacrificing bits and pieces of character, sense of commitment, the principles of accountability that had been going on in my home since my earliest memories, fidelity, honesty. I give those things away. Not knowing, because we're just having a good time. We're just having a good time. So I finished SMU. I'd applied to a lot of universities. Nobody got to fast forward through that and tell you I went to SMU on full academic scholarship after I finished Woodrow. And uh, I was a president scholar to Southern Methodist University. I remember how proud my grandmother was. It's a big article in the paper. There were 12 of us. Full ride, paid SMU. It's on a thing called the mortar board. Mortar board was a big honor. It meant that uh, that small group of students held the university to its academic standards and its standards of what you did as a member of community at SMU. I started selling research papers because my allowance just wasn't quite enough. <laughs> Everybody needed a typist back then. I sold one to a girl for $10, English paper. It was a good English paper, too. Her typist was good. He wrote my name and my professor's name in the top right-hand corner of every page. She, of course, slid it in without even looking at it. Then I was before, at the end of that first year at SMU, I was before a group of uh, professors, members of the Board of Trustees, Southern Methodist University. I remember my grandmother. I remember her face. The sense of dejection. Disappointment. She called a lot of favors to keep me in that school. Five years I finished with a degree in international business and French. I've lived and worked in Dallas, Texas all my life. Got my first DWI. I didn't make it to commencement. By the time I'm in my mid-twenties, I mean, I'm the kind of drunk who's, I don't know anything about rules, about drinking every day, drinking in the morning, all that kind of stuff. I know that my neighbors look askance at me if I get out at 7 or 7.30 in the morning with a rocks glass in my hand. They just don't like it. They do not, they really don't like it when I go to my car and get in my car with the rocks glass. So I'm the guy who pours hot vodka in his coffee mug in the morning. And I really love it what Kent talks about when he talks about leaving the lawnmower and not understanding anybody could cut the grass. I'm going to tell you, I lived in a corporate apartment, corporate furnished apartment. His limit was three months because you lived there at a in, hugely inflated price. Everything provided for you because you were supposed to be in transition. You were either moving into Dallas or moving out of Dallas. You just needed a temporary place to stay. I lived there a year and a half. 
That old woman that owned that corporate apartment called me about every two months and say, well, are you going anytime soon? You know, or is everything? And I'd, uh, I'd, I'd make plans. I'd make plans during the week for the weekend. I was going to go to Target and buy dish towels. Buy me just three or four dish towels. I didn't own a thing. Nothing. Well, everybody knows you've got to have a couple of gin and tonics in the morning before you go to Target on Saturday. I'd be so drunk by noon that even I wouldn't drive. I think I'd just take myself a little nap for a couple hours, and then I'm going to get over to Target. It's open until 9 o'clock at night. I had probably, I don't know, a thousand pieces of scratch paper with various and sundry lists on them when I moved out of that place, finally, because she was going to kick me out at 18 months residency in that place. I'd never bought a dish towel, never bought a piece of silverware, nothing. Drinking incapacitates a guy like me in all areas of my life. When I take a drink, it is the end all and the be all. There is nothing else. Nothing else. The obsession is absolute. My friends are getting married and they say, please come to our wedding and under no circumstances can you come to the reception. You are absolutely barred from our wedding reception. <laughs> because we're tired of taking care of you. We are tired of taking care of you. We're tired of you wandering off. More or less insanely drunk. I'm trying to be a mover and a shaker in business. I was working for a software company. Excuse me. My sponsor says, never lie from behind the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was being paid by a software company. <laughs> and I was trying to be a mover and a shaker. I was just moving and shaking in the ways that are not business related. Annette <laughs> Strauss had been elected mayor of city Dallas. First woman mayor we had ever had. Cutting edge in my town. Mayor and city council were on a dais, Fairmont Hotel, downtown Dallas, afternoon luncheon. Five or six hundred of the major players in the city were gathered in the ballroom. I was probably 25 years old. I'd been having blips. They were increasing in magnitude and intensity. Blips and Alcoholics Anonymous blackouts. Blackouts and Alcoholics Anonymous, but I like to call them blips because blips can be short like that, or they can be extended in duration. I never knew exactly what happened or transitioned during the period of the blip, except perhaps if I was engaged in conversation with you. <laughs> we would be having a little bit of a conversation. I might have been on my second drink. I might have been on my ninth drink. We had absolutely no idea exactly when it might happen, and I would blip. And I would know how the blip lasted and what happened during the blip based on when I came out. Sometimes you were still just telling me some story, just continuing on with some story. I'd lost maybe 10 or 15 years of the story, but we were still in the story. Sometimes there was just a look of you were appalled, absolutely appalled. So obviously you had finished your story, and I started telling one of mine. So I went to that, I went to that luncheon at Fairmont. I went at table one, but I was at table two. Paid a lot of money for that ticket that day. I knew I really needed to integrate myself into the business fabric there at that event that day. So I always drank vodka when I really wanted to do business. And, uh, and so I'd had about half a fifth of vodka before I got over there at that lunch, and I thought that way I'll only want to have a couple of drinks because I'll have a buzz on by the time I get down there. And, uh, and I blipped. 
And, you know, uh, my grandmother raised me to be a gentleman. And I know before the blip, I excused myself from that table because I need to go to the men's room. And then I blipped. And when I came out of the blip, there were people running at me from all the doors in the ballroom of the Fairmont Hotel. I mean, there were guards coming at me. Uh, I didn't make it to the men's room. And I don't know about Greensboro, but I'm going to tell you, if you drop your pants and pee in front of the mayor of the city of Dallas, they're going to come after you. Now, it's time to get sober. And for those of you who stood up that are relatively new to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, the Al-Anon family groups, I want you to know that this is as good as it got six months before I darkened the doors of AA. I was doing a lot of fighting. Now, I'm, again, not built any better back then than I'm built tonight. I didn't do a lot of people fighting. I tried to run as often as I possibly could. But I did a lot of furniture fighting. And I talked at the midwinter in Raleigh, and I cannot remember the woman's name. She's from over here somewhere, and she was a furniture fighter. So I had jammed up these two fingers. I driven myself over to Medical City, fine hospital in my city, about 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and went in there to get these fingers repaired. They were really jammed up bad. And so the ER nurse said, I'll tape them and splint them, and she did all that stuff, and then she took some blood like they always do. I'm waiting to get the discharge and, I don't know, maybe a little prescription or two, whatever they might give me. And, and uh, oh, my God, a whole herd of white coats come back in. <laughs> my God, we took your blood work, your point two eight at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. So we have to go through that. How much do you drink? Have you been doing it for a long time? Blah, 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 blah. So the next week, I had another fight. And I chipped the bone in this elbow. I'm not going back to Medical City. I went Presbyterian. That was Sunday about noon. So they do a little sling and a little bit of a half cast. I mean, it wasn't broken. It was just busted there kind of bad. And so same old deal happened. I had one nurse when I started, and I had half of the medical faculty within 15 minutes. Point two four, point two four at 1230 on a Sunday afternoon. I said, my God, it's the weekend. It's the weekend. <laughs> So then I won't give you any big details except to tell you I'd busted this heel, heel in another fight. So I had these two fingers in a splint. I had this in a half a cast. And I had a big old boot on my left foot. That was doctor's hospital fixed that thing. And I went out with some old friends from SMU. Go figure. I mean, Frankenstein met them for drinks. And I knew I could drive because I drive with my right foot. I got drunk. I was drunk when I left the house, and I was knee-walking drunk when I got back home. And so I pushed a little too hard on my front door, and I fought with an iron coffee table in my living room, and I lost. And I played for three or four hours, and when I woke up, I couldn't see out of my left eye. And I thought, oh, my God, Jimmy, there's not a woman in the city of Dallas going to want a skinny 31-year-old one-eyed guy. 
and I was sobering up. And everybody in the room that knows what I know knows that if you think you put an eye out, you really need a drink. So I went in the bathroom to find out the extent of my wounds, and I had an epiphany. Now, remember what I prefaced all of this mess with. Six months prior to coming to AA, this is as good as my life is getting. I had not punctured out my eyeball. I just split this part of my head open so bad that this flap had fallen over my eye. And I'm excited about that. Medical City, pesky doctors, Presbyterian, pesky doctors, doctor's hospital, pesky doctors. I will have none of that. So I held the two pieces of my head together and slapped a big piece of duct tape on there. Now, I'm going to tell you, you got to be drunk. I would even say you might have just a little bitty bit of alcoholism. If you put duct tape on a wound that needs about 30 stitches, you are definitely having to be wasted to get that duct tape off. I was hung over for four days on that deal. That grandmother, you know, she lived five or six miles away. She's not out of the picture. She wouldn't stay out of the picture. You know, she was getting older. When I got bonded out of jail on my second DWI, which, by the way, was not at her behest because she had told me she wouldn't help me. How dare her to do that? I called her lawyer. I said, she'll be happy to pay any bill you happen to present. You need to get me out. About four or five o'clock in the morning, drunk and disorderly, me, Beats on an 80-year-old woman's door until she comes downstairs. This is the beginning of 1996. When she opened her door, she saw a crazy man. She didn't recognize me. How could she? I wasn't that boy that she had raised. I'd become something completely different. I said, old woman, you get out there and you pay that cab and you fix it because you owe me. And I believed that. She finally got me in the house so the neighbors wouldn't know once again what I was like or try not to. Four or five hours later, I was still drunk. I woke up and I was looking for my keys. She had hidden that keys. I ripped that phone out of that wall and told her I'd strangle her with that cord if she can give me my car keys. That's what's coming out called Sonoma. It's not any fun anymore. Hadn't been any fun in a long, long time. So after that second DWI, I was held by Dallas County Adult Probation in many different areas of my life. One of the areas primarily that they helped me with was they court-ordered me to meetings of AA. I didn't come. They knew I wasn't changing. They knew I was still drinking and driving, endangering my life and the lives of others in my city. After a year of that playing around, probation officer said, we're going to revoke your probation. We already know. I don't even have to go to the judge. I'm going to send you to state jail for two years for revocation. You have a choice. You can go to this outpatient treatment facility. 
I don't have anything but good things to say about that. It was run by, owned by a longtime sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Four o'clock to nine o'clock, Monday through Friday, went over to a medical building in Dallas for outpatient treatment. Memorial Day of 1997, they tricked me in my very first day. Right before six o'clock, they marched us like lemmings to my first meeting of AA. They discussed something in that meeting. It's still there. It's much smaller now than it was back then. There were probably 100 people in that room. Key is meeting house. And you'll know in a minute exactly what I mean by that. I know as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is a deep, deep difference between a home group and a meeting house. They asked anyone have to desire to stay sober for one 24-hour period. They offered silver chip. In my part of the world, silver chip. I didn't want that chip. I had no idea what might be attached to that. It looked like some kind of commitment. I'd shied away from commitment for years. I didn't want what you had. The other people that were in the treatment facility longer than a day said, get the chip. It's your first meeting. Get the chip and make the commitment. I accepted the medallion. I sat down. Now, as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can tell you I take that commitment very, very seriously. I know that sometimes when they walk 10 feet, that's like walking 100 miles, come to a podium in AA and accept a silver medallion and make a commitment to 24 hours of continuous sobriety. They didn't know any different in the meeting house that night. We closed the meeting with Lord's Prayer at 7 o'clock, and at a minute after 7, the room was empty. Meeting house. We came by, we met, we're done. Got one guy held back. His name's Drew. Seventeen years I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's never had more than a year of continuous sobriety. For whatever reason, he has not been able to work all 12 steps. And he's gotten what he's put in. But he was a godsend to the new man. He knew how to do that. This thing called a sponsor had told Drew in no uncertain terms that if a new man approached that meeting, he was to always hold back and make sure that he was given a proper welcome. And that's what he did. He approached the new man and he shook my hand and he said, my name is Drew. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to give you my telephone number. I'm going to do everything I can to get yours. If you'll be at this exact same meeting tomorrow night, I'll be here. We were people who not would normally not mix. We would have never mixed. He had, he had drywall all over him. Had 40 earrings in this ear and 50 in this one. He had tattoos started at the top of his neck and ran at the tips of his fingernails. I'm practically born in a coat and tie. Demographic matters not. I left my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with everything that Alcoholics Anonymous needed to give me. No book, no meeting directory, no newcomer packet. I had a handshake from a guy who'd been sober for six months in a row, a telephone number, and a commitment. I'm sober 17 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have said yes to anything and everything that Alcoholics Anonymous has asked me to do because that's what they told me to do when I came. And I'll never repay the handshake. It can't be repaid. No way. 
So during the course of that long, hot summer of 1997, in the middle of the summer, I was sent over to this book study on Thursday night, these Nazi AA members. They had this book study on Thursday night. A couple would come by and pick me up, run me out there. Very first night, I sat across the picnic table from a big, tall guy that looked like Larry Bird. He became my first sponsor in Alcox Anonymous. He outlined the program of action. Not any different than probably most of you heard when you were new and came to the program. And he smiled so heartily when he talked about the things that he had the opportunity to do. I was never asked, was I willing to go to any lengths? He said, I will know in short order whether or not you're willing to go to any lengths. Before we part company, you'll know the meaning of a commitment. Let's get started, he said. Let's get started. I picked and chose what I did. I didn't make my daily call in as I had committed that I would do. I didn't make the meetings that I had committed to make. I didn't read the book as I had committed to read the book. Of course, it's difficult to work the steps if you're not reading the literature, et cetera, et cetera. So I had 30 days of white knuckle something. And on the night of the 24th of August, I polished off the end of a half a gallon of skull vodka. And just as it's written in our book, the disease of alcoholism circumstances made me willing to believe. I began to open just a tiny crack of a window that I had shut all of those years before, long before I'd taken my first drink and asked God to please help me. And that has been as profound a prayer as I have ever said and continue to say in the years that I've been afforded the opportunity to be here with you. Those people said it's an honor and privilege during the course of that summer, I heard that a thousand times. It's an honor and privilege to go to the detox, honor and privilege to go to the treatment center, honor and privilege to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to down Tennessee call and take a meeting to the prison. It's an honor and privilege to help people move. It's an honor and privilege to go to Norman, Oklahoma and make a talk. It's an honor and privilege. Honor and privilege, honor and privilege, honor and privilege. No, I had not subscribed to that. I thought they were way over the top. New way of living and thinking. Started on the 25th of August. Am I willing to go to any lengths? I thought there was going to be some big test. What's the big test, I thought. My sponsor had a little Honda Accord. He sponsored at the time me and two of the fattest members of Alcox Namas we have ever had. When I had 30 days of sobriety, a group in Norman, Oklahoma called the Phoenix Group was celebrating their group anniversary. Sharon, at the time, B, from Los Angeles, was coming to Norman to make a talk. So my sponsor said, be ready at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We are coming by to pick you up. I had the least amount of sobriety, so I found my seat. It was on the hump in the back of the Honda Accord between the two fattest members of Alcox Anonymous. No sooner had we pulled away from the curb than he popped in a cassette. Now, I'm the 30-day wonder, remember? 30-day wonder how you got 30 days, who I am. And I say to myself, thank God, we don't have to talk about the steps, we don't talk about the book, we don't have to talk about how happy we are, we don't have to talk about how, you know, it's a God thing, we don't just don't have to talk. You know, he's a child of the 80s, I'm a child of the 80s, I could even, you know, I can hope for Journey, I can hope for Van Halen, I can hope for something. And the tape spins up, and she says, my name's Sharon, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> so I raise my hand from the back of the 
Honda Accord to be recognized. Excuse me. We're driving 220 miles without drinking, which in itself was an anomaly. To go hear a woman named Sharon make a talk at some group for their anniversary. And that tape just said, Sharon. And my sponsor looks into the rearview mirror. I can see him in the picture in the rearview mirror. And he has that newcomer kind of look on his face. And I'm thinking it's a legitimate question. And he said, it is the same Sharon. And I said, question number two. Why would we listen to a tape of Sharon from Los Angeles when we're going to Norman to hear Sharon in person make a talk tonight in Norman? I don't get it. Same disgruntled look. It's not the same talk, he said. It is not the same talk. I know I need to wrap this up. I'm two things that I get out of here. I'm going to tell you that uh, when I had a year of sobriety, I made a big deal out of that year of sobriety. Greg had worked the steps with me. We did a lot of time in the car, lots of time in the car. I would talk in Fort Worth, or he'd talk in Denton, or he'd talk in Waco, or we'd go and hear somebody talk, and uh, and I learned a lot of things along the way. I learned a lot of things about practical application of the principles that are embodied in the steps. I learned it from members of the home group. I learned how to take and hold a commitment. The summer of 1997, when I barely drew a sober breath at that Thursday night book study, they offered me a commitment. The big book group would give you a three-by-five index card and tell you about your commitment, when you needed to show up, what you needed to do. I put the signs out in front of the church where they met on Thursday night. As I said before, I've had lots of commitments since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I remember I, I stayed sober on Thursdays during the course of that summer. And I'd put those signs out at that group. And I'd get drunk on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And, of course, the conscience of the group was if you lost your sobriety, you lost your commitment. So the chairman of the steering committee would approach me every Thursday during the course of that summer, and he would take that commitment away. Jimmy, you've lost your sobriety. And he'd turn on his heel, and he'd give the commitment back. When I served delegate, I took a whole lot of stuff with me to New York. Lots and lots of stuff. Before I packed a coat or a tie, before I packed a piece of background material, I packed one of my most treasured possessions in Alcoholics Namas. I got an index card, three by five, that'll tell you how to put the signs out at the Big Book Group on Thursday night. They brought me into Alcoholics Namas. They brought me into AA. And so at that first year thing, we, you get your cake and a couple of minutes at the podium, and Greg gave me an envelope, my sponsor, and I thought, there you go. He acts like he's tough. I've moved him in such a way that he's speechless. He cannot express to me, he's embarrassed, but to express to me how I have rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence in this very short window of time. I jumped in the car before we went to dinner, ripping up in the envelope. There were no pearls of wisdom. There was no note saying, my gosh, my life and sobriety have changed because of working with somebody like you. Application for Texas Department of Corrections, what I found in my envelope. 
They said, bring problems to your sponsor and bring solutions to the meetings. And I had a problem, so I brought it to him right then, post-haste. I said, I've never been any higher than the drunk tank at the county jail, and I've been arrested many times. I actually kind of puffed up at that. I've never been a candidate to be an inmate, Texas Department of Corrections. I have absolutely no desire, no willingness whatsoever, no inkling that I would ever in a million years be interested in doing anything that had to do with going into a facility, Texas Department of Corrections. And he looked at me and he said, I understand. We'll be picking you up four o'clock. On Saturday morning, he said, we could really go at 4.30, but we like to leave at 4 in the morning so we can all eat breakfast together. So at 4 o'clock on a Saturday morning, the spirit wagon departed Dallas, Texas, to make a 160-mile journey down to a place that we called Tennessee Colony. There are six units in the colony, 15,000 inmates. To go on to the Cofield unit, maximum security penitentiary in my state, 3,600 men, it's the largest facility in the state of Texas. We went in and all those different gates and this, that, and the other, and those of you who do prison work know exactly what I'm talking about. I was petrified. And I walked into a room with a hundred of my fellows who were beyond grateful for the opportunity to gather together for a meeting of Alcox Anonymous. And I understood what some of those people talk about when they'd say, we're going to teach you the difference between a privilege and an obligation. And when that old dog would say stuff like, we don't really care how you feel. The work needs to be done. It's there and it needs to be done. So, that grandmother, quick. You know, when I first got sober, before I'd worked any step except maybe the first one, my sponsor said, call her on Sunday. And I began to do that. Conversations might have lasted a minute, maybe two. Finally, after about five months, she asked for a copy of our book. I gave her a copy of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and she read it. None were impressed, but she read it. And after about seven months, she actually allowed me to come into her home and have lunch, which was a big deal because I was not welcome in her home when it came to you. She said, I'll go to lunch with you, but I won't get in the car with you. And after I made direct amends to her at about 18 months of sobriety, she knew she had the floor that afternoon. And for the whole afternoon, she talked. And she let me know about a whole bunch of stuff that I would have told you she didn't know anything about. And from that day on, for the next 14 years of sobriety, little bitty bits and pieces were given back to me. I was able to begin to restore a relationship that I absolutely cared about. My sponsor would tell me stuff like, she owes you nothing. You owe her everything. Don't you dare make a commitment to her and not fulfill it. Absolutely not. It's absolutely unacceptable. No AA commitment trumps a commitment to her. Through all of my service positions, I always ask permission. If I came to something like this, I ask her because Sunday was her day. And so we transitioned through all of that. She knew a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous. She called it the AA. She had a tremendous amount of respect for the AA. She was in her 95th year. Had a couple of bouts of pneumonia. 
was at my home group on a Wednesday night. I got a telephone call from the assisted living. I went over there, saw the deal, called my sponsor, Baxter. He said, keep me informed. I figured it was about a pneumonia. She had fought it successfully before. The next day, they let me know that it wasn't the same. So I called him and asked him what he thought that I needed to do. And he said, you listen to that doctor, but you remember that she's 95, and in no way, shape, form, or fashion are you allowed to put any more suffering on her. None at all. He came over to that hospital within an hour. I didn't even ask him to come. He prayed with me. We made the decision to pull those antibiotics away from her, and she was in a deep sleep. She went into her own deep sleep, peaceful, beautiful. My sponsor left. I stayed that day and that night, and the next morning, the nurse came by to verify the information. She said, I need to verify the birth date. I leaned across the bed. I said, September the 25th, 1916. Last month, she just had her 95th birthday. She hadn't roused in 30 hours. Those eyes opened. And the voice wasn't strong, but it was clear. And she said, Jimmy Dean, how many times have I told you we never tell them how old I am? Through the help of the men that I sponsor, and certainly my sponsor, I didn't run, and I'm a runner. And I had listened to your stories, and you told me how we walk through those things with dignity and with grace. And I was there when she left this world, and I was happy and joyous for the fact that she was free. And that is not me. I am a guy who has been cleverly disguised as a functioning member of society because of a God working through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know about 3 o'clock in the morning, people, and the end of the story is this. My name is Jimmy Dean. I'm listed in the telephone book in Dallas, Texas. If you don't know who 3 o'clock in the morning people are in your hometown, some people have got some sobriety, I'll tell you exactly who they are. They're the people who don't look at the display. They answer the phone. And I'm a three o'clock in the morning guy for you. I owe you that. And I thank you for the honor and privilege to be here. Thanks.